Welcome to Fiduciary Fitness, the podcast that covers all aspects of running your company's retirement plan. The most significant retirement plan legislation in more than a decade, the SECURE Act, was signed into law in December 2019. It seeks to make it easier for businesses to offer retirement plans and for individuals to save for retirement. Join us for part one of a two-part discussion on the key provisions of the SECURE Act and its potential impact on retirement plan sponsors and participants. The three voices you'll hear today are WFG President Joe DeNoyer, Hub Retirement Services National President David Reich, and partner at the Wagner Law Group, Thomas Clark. Part one will primarily be Tom Clark discussing the nuts and bolts of the SECURE Act. Next week, part two of our show will be a discussion between Joe and Dave about the impacts of the SECURE Act. And now, on to the show. The SECURE Act is the single biggest piece of retirement legislation that we've had in our country since the 2006 Pension Protection Act. Uh, since 2006, and that's the same year that the Saints returned to the Superdome after Hurricane Katrina, Google buys YouTube, and the Dow crosses 12,000 for the first time that 2006. The, the intent of this act is, is it's, a, it's designed to make and improve retirement security by making saving for retirement easier and more accessible than ever before, all while reducing some of the burden for employers. So for us retirement geeks, this is a really big deal, and we're excited about it. But as an employer, there are things that, you ha- that you're going to need to know. My name is David Reich, and I'm Hub's president of Retirement and Private Wealth. And I've been in financial services for over 20 years, and I'm passionate about helping employers help their employees better prepare for retirement. Also joining me on the call is Joe DeNoyer. Joe is a retirement practice leader at Hub and is the president of Washington Financial Group, a division of Hub International. Joe is an ideal advisor to join us because his experience is really helping plan sponsors cut through the noise and focus on what's really important specifically to them, and that's especially important with the SECURE Act. Joe's been practicing for uh, almost 30 years and has been a thought leader every single one of those years. He's won more industry awards than we have time to mention, but I will highlight that he's the past president of the National Association of Plan Advisors, and he has spent a ton of time on Capitol Hill working with lawmakers on what is now the SECURE Act. He's proud of advocating for both participants and for employers. We also have Tom Clark, a partner at Wagner Law on the webinar. We asked Tom to join this, uh, join the webinar specifically because of his expertise in, in all aspects of employee benefits, including design, implementation, and compliance of retirement plans. He really is one of the go-tos in our industry uh, for all providers for ERISA compliance. And I think most impressively, his vast experience in defending employers and fiduciaries in all arenas whether it be with the IRS or DOL investigations or through litigation, including working on some landmark ERISA cases such as Tibble versus Edison, a case that went before the Supreme Court. And so with that, you know, I'll turn it over to Tom. Tom, what can you tell us about the SECURE Act? Give us some background. Thanks, David. I'm happy to be here with everybody. Um, let me make some sort of table-setting comments for everyone on the phone. So uh, first off, uh, those of us in the retirement industry were happy and surprised we actually got the SECURE Act. Uh, there were folks like Joe on the phone with us today who were uh, working their tails off in D.C. to make this happen. Uh, this was not a done deal until very, very, very late when we found out that the president would sign it and would get passed through Congress. 
Uh, there has been various versions of this legislation that have gone through different iterations, had different names, generally tried to achieve similar goals. Uh, but, but to get this one across the, uh, the home plate was uh, only something that really came, came to fruition in the last few days before the end of 2019. So uh, kudos to all those uh, many, many, many nameless folks who, who, who helped. Uh, so what is the SECURE Act, right? It's, it's technical name setting every community up for retirement enhancement. Um, so let me set the table for folks. It, there is nothing about this statute that has a common theme or story through it. Um, unlike other statutes when they're passed by Congress, signed by the president, you usually can kind of start at the beginning, go through the middle, go to the end, and it has a common theme, a common story. It's very easy to see how everything is threaded together. This, so, so think of a, a metaphor, right? My, my wife, this past Thanksgiving, sets up a menu, sends me to the store with a list, and at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, when she's done cooking or we're all done cooking, you know, the meal is going to have a theme, right? It's all going to kind of fit together. Everything's going to complement each other. Uh, the Secure Act is more akin to me handing my credit card to my four sons, sending them to the food store, and having them come back with whatever each of them wanted. Uh, and there's not going to be any common theme amongst what they're eating. Uh, same sort of thing here. I, I'm going to do my best today to, in the next, let's say, 30 minutes or so, to kind of go through the major provisions of the SECURE Act. But, but you're going to find that as I'm going through, that there's no continuity from one slide to the next, right? It, it, one doesn't build up necessarily on the other. It's all going to be separate little projects, separate little pieces, separate little ways that the law has been changed or carved or polished or, or, or whatever metaphor you want to use. <clears throat> and, and the overall goal is, and it may not be apparent on the face of the provisions, the overall goal is to increase uh, participation, increase employers' offering plans, um, help the, the ultimate participant. But it, it's done through uh, just a series and a number of series of very highly technical changes. And that's the other aspect that people are on the phone are going to get today, that I'm going to do my best to explain this stuff in plain English rather than in you know, ERISA lawyer legalese. But some of this may just be difficult to understand because uh, we don't have hours and hours and hours to lay the groundwork for the current rules. And so to the extent I can address them, I will. But, but essentially, it, it's, again, a lot of polishing of changing of this provision and a changing a little of that provision. So that's, that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say to set everybody up for, for my going over the SECURE Act is, and this is probably the most important thing that I'll say at the beginning before getting into the technical aspects, there is nothing here that makes the house on fire that you have to uh, do right away. Right. That, 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 that there's, you know, unlike some statutes when things change in other areas that you as employers are responsible for, where you've got to literally do something in the next week or you're going to be in trouble. There's nothing like that in the SECURE Act. Uh, there are a handful of required changes for plans, but the vast, vast majority of them come in over time. Uh, your provider will send you amendments. The amendments can be done. You have to operationally follow it, but, but nothing is on fire. The vast majority of provisions that change in the SECURE Act are optional. And so some of them have to do with establishing plans. I'm going to assume for the most part the folks on the phone listening in already have plans. 
So even though I'll talk a little bit about that, uh, it's not going to be applicable to you. Uh, but a lot of the, the changes are optional. And so what? So what's the end goal that you should get out of listening to all this today? We're going to sort of wrap it up at the end after I'm done talking about the technical aspects. But But the goal should be, after listening to this, that you sit down and meet with your advisor consultant, and you're going to have time to talk about how all of this smorgasbord of stuff applies to your individual plan. Because if I have you know, there's there's a lot of people on this call. If there are, you know, 500 different or a thousand different plans on, on the phone represented by the people on the phone, this law potentially applies to all 500 or a thousand differently, depending on what your provisions look like, what your participant pool looks like. Do you have an older workforce, younger workforce? Do you have more part-timers, less part-timers, uh, uh, more highly compensated, less highly compensated? It, it, there's no way, so it's nice to know that the rules have changed, but the real magic is going to be when you step back after listening, meet with your advisor or consultant and apply specifically what's here and what's offered in this new law to your specific plan. That's really only when all of this is going to make sense and truly be beneficial. Although of course we're grateful for you getting on the phone and listening today. So, right. So let's dive right in, right? Here's a, a quick summary that we have, uh, something for everyone. Uh, plan sponsors. So one of the first major things, and I'll get to this later in the slides, are, are what's now called pooled employer plans. Uh, this is the idea of, of different employers coming together and sponsoring the same plan. Uh, similar to the concept of MEPS, multiple employer plans, if everyone's heard of that. Uh, there were some very complex rules. We'll get into it later. They changed it uh, to encourage employers coming together and offering those types of plans. Increased tax credits for people sponsoring new plans. So again, if most of you have uh, plans already, that's not going to apply. But for those of you who don't, they have increased tax credits to make that happen. Uh, there has been there's some fiduciary relief regarding the selecting of lifetime income providers. Uh, there had been a safe harbor passed a number of years ago, but it didn't. Many people felt it didn't go far enough, and so we'll get into those changes to better protect plan sponsors. There's also, and uh, which is a little scary, bigger penalties for when uh, things are when you mess up as plan sponsors late with things. So on. we'll talk about that. So for workers, uh, we have some auto enrollment uh, caps raised. Uh, the the general consensus is that the cap that was there was not high enough, and so they raised it uh, because the general thinking now amongst financial planners is people need to save even more than we thought years ago in order to get to a sound retirement. Uh, one of the major provisions that's going to be required uh, when it's implemented in, 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 in after 2021 is a brand new provision for part-timers, people you have um, in your workforce that may not be eligible for the plan at the moment, but could be uh, under the rules that we'll talk about later. That's probably one that everyone on the phone is going to need to, you know, perk up their ears and listen. And then also uh, a change for workers, they've uh, allowing distributions out of the plans for um, adoption to cover costs related to adoptions and births. And, and we'll talk about that. For savers, uh, the required minimum distribution rules have been delayed from 70 and a half to 72. Uh, that is good for people who are living longer, right? If they don't want to take that money out uh, sooner than they need to. Um, IRA, so there was also a previous rule for IRAs, a uh, certain capped age, you couldn't contribute anymore. Again, we now live in a world where people, uh, um, people work later in age. And so um, those rules need to change. 
uh, to catch up with modern times. Also, we talked about, or what's going to talk about later is lifetime income uh, options being portable right now. Generally, those are stuck on certain platforms and they're not movable. Uh, there are now, now rules where um, under certain conditions, those, those lifetime income options can be transferred to other plans or IRAs, and we'll talk about that. And then for uh, financial, the financial planners out there or folks who work with financial planners, uh, the stretch IRA has been eliminated, and we'll talk about what that means, and that uh, is of much concern to our uh, uh, financial planning folks out there because strategies that people have been relying on and putting in place uh, are now um, no longer available. So, okay, so let's talk. First 401k plan change, new auto enrollment cap. So the, the, right now, the, the, it's, it's at 10%. Uh, we're for plans that have uh, auto, uh, auto contribution rates. We're talking, the law allows that to go up to 15%. And so um, this begins for plan years after this year. Uh, so uh, this is a nice change. Again, this acknowledges the fact that that 10% used to be sort of the all-American number you heard from financial planners, and now we are uh, up to 15. Uh, generally, if you if you queried uh, your financial planning folks out there, they say that savers need to be saving 15% of their salary every year, and so now this change is available to um, allow that to to um, automatic. Uh, you know, increases up to 15. Generally, the thinking is, and I'm sure you've heard this from your advisors, is that participants, if it happens automatically, tend to not change the rules. And so if you can, you know, automatically encourage them to save more, they will. So that's a very favorable change. Uh, uh, they have, so for safe, so again, switching completely to something else, uh, for safe harbor plans, uh, they have uh, for non those with non-elective contributions, meaning it, it, it you know you can't it's not discretionary. It goes in uh, on the behalf of the plan sponsor, the company. Uh, there's no more notice requirements. So before you used to have to send certain requirements. Those requ uh, notice requ uh, notices are no longer uh, required. Uh, if you have those going out, your provider is going to follow up with you. If you had had a provider, if you have a plan that meets this. Your provider's been doing this automatically as part of your service agreement. Those providers are going to be making phone calls to you if they haven't already to let you know, and and um, those will be eliminated moving forward. Uh, there also have been for for safe harbor plans with non-elective contributions um, some complex rules about you being able to change uh, the plan design up to once a year. They have now used to be able to not do it uh, after a certain time period. Um, the 30th day before the close of the plan. So they've now changed that. You can have some more flexibility on timing, but if you change it during this last window, the contribution has to be increased to 4% rather than 3%. So what they're saying to folks is, uh, you know, yes, you can change. Yes, you can do all these things, but everybody has to win by getting more money. And so again, favorable to the workers and savers out there. And this is effective now uh, for, for plan years beginning after uh, this past New Year's. Uh, so uh, third 401k plan change, again, no connection to the last two. Uh, there has been an increasing arrangement where people were allowed to take plan loans through credit cards or debit cards. Um, I, my understanding is that uh, the 
there has been certain abuses. People have not liked this. It was too easy to take money out of plans. There's a number of different reasons for this, but to the extent that they were there from a policy perspective of protecting participants, people didn't like this and they wanted it to go away. It's not something that they had endorsed. It was really one of those things that had just been adopted in the marketplace uh, as practice without a law specifically addressing it. Well, now we have a law specifically addressing it and they don't like it. And so um, effective immediately, if your plan allows loans to be taken out on credit cards or debit cards, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And if you do that, th then you're going to have um, plan uh, error op operational issues and have to go get corrected and all of that. So if you're doing that, it needs to stop. Uh, more likely than not, the providers that are doing it for you uh, will know that and, and will work with you to do that. But loans are now going to have to be taken the traditional way through paperwork, checks, and so on. Okay, so uh, this is an interesting one. So, so for so, there's long been discussions that no money should be taken out of a retirement plan. Retirement plans are for retirement, and so money shouldn't be allowed to be taken out until you reach retirement age. And that is traditionally the normal rule. But over time, there have been exceptions for for hardships, for loans, uh, your first house, and, and all these other different things that have popped up over time. Um, they have allowed people to take money out of plans uh, as distributions or to pay it back. Now they have added birth and adoption to that list of uh, reasons that you'll be allowed to take money out of a plan prior to the default, which is at normal retirement age, 60, 65, 59 and a half, whatever it might be. So the, the, the change is that you are allowed to take out up to $5,000 per birth or adoption. Um, it is limited to adopting children under 18 uh, or physically or mentally incapable of self-support, uh, not adopting a child of the taxpayer spouse. So I've got stepsons, I can't adopt them and take that money out. Um, it applies on an individual basis. My understanding is one spouse can take out five out of their plan, another spouse can take out five out of their plan. It's not combined. Um, and let me just pause for a moment and 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 that's a good um, that's a, a good segue to to say it is entirely possible that all of us on this call, me right now for the thirty minutes, Joe and Dave, when we get them back on in a little while, we're going to say things under our current interpretation of all of this. And it is entirely possible when a set of regulations comes out later that everything we've said is wrong <laughs> because it's based on an initial reading. But once these laws get into the hands of the agencies that enforce them and write regulations, that the regulations can completely upend what we all thought the um, law said. That happens more often than people uh, uh, realize. And so, uh, again, th my, my analogy here is, is this is not like a new season on Netflix where you can simply stream through every single episode and binge watch it. This feels much more like a Netflix show or, you know, the Mandalorian on Disney plus, if everyone watched that, where you have to wait each week, you know, for the next episode or sometimes like star Wars movies, two years, right. To find out what the next chapter in the story is. This is much more akin to that as a metaphor that, that, Yes, we have part of the story, but the final version of the story is not going to be written in a number of these areas for years because we're still waiting for regulations. And so, again, I may say something on here. This is my best interpretation right now from what we can tell. I am the first to admit I may be entirely wrong on something because the IRS or DOL is going to undermine and or 
it, it just will take on a different meaning over time based on how it's actually applied to actual plans in real life as opposed to um, you know generalities on a, on a statutory page. That, that's pretty normal in our ERISA world. So, um, okay, so uh, birth or adoptions, penalty-free withdrawals, and this is applicable starting now. So for plan years in 2020. So this is one of those ones that can be added to a plan if people feel that that is beneficial to their plan participants. So probably the 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 one with the most profound effect for everyone. Uh, reminder of what the current law is. We are allowed to exclude employees who work under 1,000 hours a year, uh, the part-time rule. Uh, governmental plans don't have any limits, but for any of the plans subject to ERISA, it, it's a thousand hour. You, you can't prohibit somebody from being in the plan if they work more than a thousand hours in a year. It's a very gross generalization of the rule. But what that means is there's a number of people who work part time who don't have access to the retirement plan to save uh, for the employer they work at. And since the general goal of the SECURE Act was to increase the availability of plans to participants, we have this new long service part-time employee rule. And so the idea is starting January 1st, 2021, that's my understanding of what it says, so no past credit, but starting January 1st, 2021, if you have employees who work three consecutive years or 500 or more hours, which could be an incredible amount of, of folks who uh, seasonal, right? If you have seasonal, especially with overtime over the summer, that makes these people eligible. Uh, they will have to be offered eligibility into the plan, but only to defer salary. Uh, age 21 requirement is still permissible. So if it's 18-year-olds, you can still exclude them. But anybody over the age of 21 who works three consecutive years, 500 hours or more, I believe, after January 1st, 2021, you have to let them into the plan. However, they're not going to be counted towards discrimination testing or any kind of testing for employer contributions. All you have to do is allow them uh, to defer their own salary. So this is a nice compromise, right? It allows people access, but doesn't necessarily upset the apple cart for those who have very distinct workforces with part-time folks and that if all of them had to be allowed and paid the employer agreed contributions like matching or money purchase or profit sharing, safe harbor, you, you, you potentially could get that employer, the plan would be so expensive they wouldn't want it anymore um, or would have to pare down benefits. This is a compromise. Uh, doesn't mean, you know, let, let's gut check for a second. You can let anybody into your plan at any point. So right now, if you have immediate admission, uh, probably nothing needs to change about your plan because this isn't going to apply because anyone who starts working for you for one hour um, is allowed into uh, the plan. Uh, so, but if, but this is really applies to people who have that part-time rule, anyone under a thousand hours isn't eligible. So, so, uh, Dave and Joe will talk a little bit about, I think later about planning for this now. Um, uh, you can start doing planning now and getting ready for this, uh, for later. So, uh, another change, soft frozen defined benefit plans. This may not really apply to anybody on the phone if you have a, a closed defined benefit plan, meaning no new people are allowed in, but benefits are allowed to be increased. 
this is a highly technical change where you get some discrimination issues uh, towards highly compensated as the highly compensated employees tend to stay around longer, the lower paid employees tend to leave, um, and so you can have some real testing issues uh, for, the, for the defined benefit plan and things can get out of whack. This is more of a relief provision that says, okay, you can do some different kind of testing as we recognize this sort of happens. Highly technical. If you have a soft frozen defined benefit plan, which I might say two of you, I'm going to guess two of you on the call may have, uh, then you're going to be talking to your consultants, advisors, actuaries quite soon about this. Uh, but if not, <clears throat> this doesn't apply to you. So increased penalties. Uh, so failure to file your Form 5500 goes up to $250 per day, not to exceed $150,000. That is, that is a lot of money. And unfortunately, in my career of fixing uh, retirement plan errors, uh, th this is something we see um, uh, more often than I wish. Uh, so this can get very expensive for folks. Uh, failure to file a registration statement, $10 per participant, not to exceed $50,000. That's an increase. Uh, failure to file a required notice of change in status, $10 per day, not to exceed $10,000 for any failure. Failure to file a required withholding notice, $100 per failure, not to exceed $50,000. So this was just a, a quality of life housekeeping change on the part of the government that the pen, they felt the pen, penalties were too low and, and maybe were not uh, punitive enough to get people to follow the rules, those people on the edge who don't do what they're supposed to do. And so now uh, we have these increased penalties. So for those who don't already have a plan, they have enhanced uh, the tax credit for small employers. Uh, it has to be for employers with under 100 employees, and then um, it increases uh, the cap um, times uh, the greater of $500 or the lesser of $250 for each non-highly compensated employee or 5,000 participant or $5,000. And so the idea here, again, without getting into the technical nature of it is, it, it, they ho they're hoping if they offer small employers more tax credits, more small employers will start plans. Uh, generally, th there is a trend, or if you did statistical analysis and you looked in surveys, uh, smaller employees with smaller employers, rather with smaller numbers of, of employees, do not have retirement plans. And, and that most of the folks in this country who have access to retirement plans, it's when they work for larger employers. And so this is a, another effort uh, to get folks into plans. Um, you compare this to the efforts in some states uh, where the states um, have taken this issue up on their own and required small employers with um, certain number of workers to participate mandatorily in, in state programs and and this might be the federal government's uh, somewhat response to that to make it a little bit more palatable for those small employers to start plans um, under the normal scheme like the rest of the employers. So, uh, you know, for all those people out there who don't have access, that's the goal that they hope that that goes to. So, okay, let's talk about lifetime income. Again, another disparate topic, really no connection to anything else we've talked about so far today. Um, I'm sure it's feeling uh, a little, you know, a little head spinning for people. So one of the issues with lifetime income products, meaning annuities, right? Another name for them are annuities, although they're not always called that in the retirement plan context. The idea is I put a certain amount of money into a product. I then get a guaranteed payout from that. That's just one way of doing it. I get a guaranteed payout for the rest of my life. 
you know, $1,000 a month, $1,500 a month, and so on. The, the problem with some of these products is that they are very dependent on the platform the plan is on. For anyone on the call who's done research on this, they know that um, these are not products uh, that uh, all the time are generally movable, applicable to different platforms. And so the, the government and, and those of us in the industry want to see an increased use of this uh, because from a policy perspective, this again helps savers, helps participants know that they can lock in that income and they have the money they need to survive and, and thrive in retirement. And so uh, the, there's changes here in that if a participant gets in these products and then for some reason the plan sponsor doesn't want to offer it anymore, not only has it not been portable, but the downside is that you then, to get out of it, you have to pay penalties because typically to guarantee for the insurance company or the provider to guarantee payments, they have to have certain guarantees and finances over the money. And so there's, there's penalties when you take your money out early, you know, typical annuity stuff. And so the idea here is participants may take a distribution of the lifetime income investment, meaning they can move the investment to an IRA or maybe another plan if the plan allows it. If the lifetime income option no, is no longer authorized as an investment under the plan and distribution is made to another retirement plan or IRA through a direct rollover, um, or if it's annuity contract by direct distribution to the individual. And this applies to tax qualified defined contribution plans, 403B plans, and 457B plans. And so um, as lifetime income options increase in popularity, uh, as providers offer new products, uh, this hopefully will be a, um, a, a good change to see more of those products develop in the industry. Um, closely related to that, we now, uh, participants are now required to receive statements that discloses the, their balance in the equivalent of a lifetime income stream. So it's going to state their monthly benefits in the form of an annuity or joint and survivor annuity, and they're supposed to receive it at least one time per 12-month period. The problem with this has always been, this has been a good idea because some people don't understand, okay, I have a $90,000 account balance. What does that mean for me? Well, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For a low-wage worker, that might be all the money they need when combined with Social Security. For somebody who's you know middle class, that might not be enough. People have different issues translating that into what is this going to be for me, for my lifetime, what's out there. So this was an attempt to translate account balances to something more akin to what people would receive under old school defined benefit plans. Uh, you know, the kind that my grandfather had working for RCA for 47 years. The problem is there's completely different assumptions that can be made, uh, uh, you know, different mortality tables, different, just uh, so many different inputs that there's no standard way of doing it. And so people have struggled to get it on and required for a long time. There were efforts inside the DOL to do this as a regulation. Now we're finally seeing it as part of a statute, uh, but not right now. Why? Because the DOL has to offer within one year of enactment, so starting by the end of this year, they have to put out a set of regulations that uh, allow uh, what the permissible assumptions are. They need to issue a, a model lifetime income disclosure. So they're going to tell us what that should look like. And they need to issue uh, interim final rules. And so stay tuned on this one. I personally think that this will be um, a great move for people. It will be eye-opening for people to know what 
how a $40,000 account balance compares to a $200,000 account balance compares to a $750,000 account balance uh, for their lifetime and for them. It will help people plan better. Uh, the other side of it is people really hope, and, and this will be an opportunity for education with your advisors later on, and maybe I'm stepping on Dave and Joe's toes a little bit, but that if your participants now see that their current account balance is only worth $150 a month in retirement, no one can live on $150 a month. And so it 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 may end up being quite a fire under people's bottoms to get them to save more during their working years. And 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 that that really is the ultimate goal if I haven't stated that explicitly. So for me personally, I think this is a good this is a good move and a good plan and and one more arsenal and everyone's tools to get people to save more as the requirement and duty to save has been shifted more to the American worker and less from the American employer like it was, again, a generation ago when most people received or a lot of people received defined benefit uh, plans. So third lifetime income option change, somewhat related to the last two, is we got a safe harbor for the selection of a lifetime income provider, I believe in PPA 2006, but for people like me, ERISA attorneys who advise plan sponsors all the time, there were some shortcomings in that safe harbor that very much felt like a catch-22 and a gotcha for those plan sponsors that if you could do everything right, investigate the different lifetime income providers, uh, look at all the information that was available that they would offer you about their products and their, and their longevity and survivability as an insurance company. But if something went wrong or you missed something, uh, you had you kept fiduciary liability even with the safe harbor. There was many plan sponsors concluded that there was still too much risk in selecting a provider. And since selecting a provider was voluntary and not mandatory, why am I even going to offer this product? Why am I even going to go? You know, try climbing that mountain. Forget it. I don't have to do it. I'm not going to take the risk. And so uh, that has been, I believe, much of the reason, at least in my conversation with my plan sponsor clients, why we haven't seen more lifetime income offered. And so uh, this is an attempt to further refine the safe harbor uh, that reduces the risk for plan sponsors for being responsible for future uh, failings of those insurance companies, as long as at the time you do, you jump through certain hoops and you're allowed to rely on um, representations. Uh, under state insurance law and all of that, it, it just gives plan sponsors out there uh, less risk to make this decision to offer these products to their plan participants, which in most circumstances are going to be in their best interest, uh, but it was scaring people. So now further refinement, less risk, more reward. So um, we will see more information on this in the future. Um, like a lot of these provisions I'm talking today. So RMD rules, uh, current or the, oh, I'm sorry, uh, the max contribution age for IRAs right now is 70 and a half. It's now going to be 72. Uh, uh, and oh, I'm sorry, there is no more. So if I'm working till 85, I apologize. If I'm working till 85, I can keep saving money till 85. Of course, the only issue there is I still have RMDs. And so I'm still going to have requirement and distribution starting now at age 72 instead of 70 and a half. So really, this is the this is going to be an issue for the financial planners out there in the world, and and and, and your employees who work with financial planners and have carefully been putting this together. There's more to come on this. The IRS has to update mortality tables and so on, but this was a recognition again of older workers 
and so we will see. The RMD rule change for your plans to 72 will be one of those changes that will come out. Your providers, more likely than not, will be giving you updates, um, and, and we'll see those changes soon. Okay, so, but at the same time, stretch IRA is not sure if everyone knows what a stretch IRA is, but it was the idea that the um, beneficiary of my IRA could benefit from the tax deferral for, for a number of years after um, um, the death of, of the person who bequeathed it. Uh, my understanding is even to their own. And so now they don't, the government doesn't like the uh, tax, the extended tax deferred nature of that, and they want to rein it in. And so now it's going to be that you have to distribute all of that money within 10 years um, uh, over, over certain things. And so uh, again, more of a fi financial planning topic, not a 100% applicable to plan sponsors on the call, but just know that that's out there and that that change has occurred. And so if you have your own financial planning meetings, you're going to want to be talking about that um, and making sure it's covered in education meetings provided to your participants by your plan advisors. Um, again, more rules on that, but we're, we're, we're making time here. I want to make sure we have enough time for, for Joe and David. So uh, another change. A uh, plan can be adopted with a tax return. This is, again, for those who don't have plans. The, the prior law required taxable qualified plans to be adopted by the last day of the taxable year. So if you wanted a plan for 19, you would have had to do it for December 31st. Now you can do it up until the date of the tax return is due, so potentially the beginning of April, um, including extensions. So that really creates more flexibility for those establishing plans. Um, it's, again, good for employees who then get one more year to have uh, – opportunity to defer. So one additional thing that they finally got the Cadillac tax on high cost group plans eliminated that came as a result of ACA. That could probably be a whole nother topic for a different PowerPoint in a different day. So let me get into MEPS and PEPS quite quickly and 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 then we will jump over to David and Joe. So uh, for, for many years we've had available multiple employer plans that is not, uh, most people get this wrong. I'm going to teach everybody a, a great little mnemonic trick that I teach my students when, when, I, when I teach as an adjunct law professor. Multi-employer plans are union plans. And the reason you can remember is that the word multi has five letters, as does union. I know very many highly accomplished ERISA attorneys who get that wrong accidentally. Multiple employer plans are not union plans. It's when you either have a closed multiple employer plan of, of close uh, employers with a common nexus. So I, uh, printers, uh, there's been a big push in the private university space. We see small private universities coming together under a closed MEP um, and, and pooling all of their assets together for, for economies of scale and, and so on. And then on the other side of that, we have open MEPs. Uh, tried to be popular a number of years ago. There were some roadblocks that we don't have enough time on today's call. Uh, the biggest one being the bad apple rule, the idea that if one employer screwed something up with their adoption of the MEP, um, it disqualified the entire plan. So you could disqualify, you know, 500 other employers if you had a qualification error. Uh, that that scared a lot of people away from adopting uh, MEPs, but they're still out there. Uh, and and so the the industry has been looking for a solution that. Uh, move some of the risk of sponsoring plans. There's been a lot of very smart people out there who feel that uh, the risk associated in the, in the administrative burden, and I'm sure everyone on the call today knows that, that's why you're listening to me, the administrative burden in sponsoring a plan is great. And so 
can we come up with another solution for a way to maybe pool everyone's plans together, share that administrative burden in a way that makes sense, that protects participants, protects, you know, the, the, just from all aspects and protects the employer. So what we now have are pooled employer plans or PEPs. So MEPs are still there. Those haven't been eliminated, but now we have pooled employer plans and the bad apple rule does not apply. Uh, so that that's some of the highlights and the, and, and the biggest um, the biggest change. And so, uh, again, again, the bad apple rule is gone for PEPs and also for um, closed uh, MEPs under the current law. So what is a PEP going to look like? A PEP has to have something called a pooled plan provider or a PPP. Uh, this entity or, or person or company is going to have to take on named fiduciary status as a 316 plan administrator. So again, that offloads a lot of the responsibility from the employer to this new provider. They're going to have to register with the government, with the Treasury, and, and be subject to audit, examination, and investigation. They're going to have to have a higher risk bond um, and uh, have certain disclosure requirements and, and acknowledge their status as a fiduciary uh, in writing. Uh, the, the, this is probably in the marketplace. If the marketplace develops correctly as intended under the law these are going to be very professional uh providers you're going to see record keepers taking on the status you're going to see advisors taking on the status you could even see lawyers and law firms taking on this status and potentially sponsoring peps um, it remains to be seen how the marketplace will develop um, employers will be required to designate the ppp they're we're going to be required to designate a trustee to collect contributions they're going to be co-sponsors of the pep but under the law, the only fiduciary responsibility that they'll retain is appointing and monitoring the pooled plan provider and investing plan assets unless you also delegate that. So this is uh, going to be a very interesting experiment to see whether uh, uh, the, there's an appetite amongst America's employers to offload as much responsibility about retirement plans as they can. I think the general thinking right now is we're going to see this more on the smaller side of the market. Smaller plans will do this, where the larger companies, mid to larger companies, will not because they will want to retain control over their plan, especially those with custom plan documents and complicated workforces. And so it's just going to be another tool in people's arsenals. But again, the idea is increased plans, increased coverage, and the added benefit to employers of, of offloaded rules. So again, we already talked about the one Apple rule. We'll skip over that for now. Uh, but none of this is happening right now. The IRS has to issue a model plan. The IRS has to issue additional guidance. Um, they claim that there's good faith reliance until then, but I just I, I find it hard to believe that providers will start offering this uh, now without that guidance from the IRS. Nobody's going to want to potentially screw up. And so this is after 2021. So stay tuned. Uh, th this could be uh, a really big deal in the retirement space. So, and and also uh, one of the added benefits is only one Form 5500 for all for the whole PEP plan. So you could have a thousand employers in there and only one one 5500. Uh, so so that's um, that's another added benefit of this. So at that, I'm going to hand it over to Joe and David. I, I hope that's been informative. Again, I'm sorry for the disjointed nature, but I'm going to hang out on the call and be available for questions later if people have them. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. If you have a question that you'd like us to address in a future episode, shoot us an email 
at info at washfinancial.com. If you enjoy our show, we'd love for you to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you access your podcasts. The opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Investment advice offered through Global Retirement Partners, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Global Retirement Partners, Washington Financial Group, a division of Hub International Mid-Atlantic, Hub International, the Wagner Law Group, and Hub Retirement Services are not affiliated with LPL Financial.